Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7, just seven verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Follow in your Bibles as I read this morning. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the word of God that we've just read. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that's mentioned here. And Lord, I thank you for the day that the gospel came to us. In fact, for most of us, it came to us many times before we actually received and believed the gospel and trusted you as our Savior. But we thank you, Lord, for that day that we were saved. But it could be that there's someone here today who has never yet trusted Jesus. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. We long for them to know you as we know you, Lord, in the forgiveness of sin and in the promise of eternal life with you forever and ever. Lord, it would be awful not to know that. It would be terrible, Lord, not to know that you're going to heaven when you die. So if anybody is uncertain about that today, I pray that you deal with their heart. Give them able to bring the message today, and we ask, Lord, that you would accomplish your will in everyone today. We pray for our missionary of the week, uh, Maria White, who's serving in Costa Rica, her husband having passed away about a year ago, and she's still there, Lord, working for you and serving you, and I pray that you would bless her and her ministry. Now give enablement to bring the message as we ask. And we give you the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we begin a study of the book of Romans. Romans is considered by many as, as the greatest book in the New Testament. The writer is the Apostle Paul, who was separated by God unto the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it should not surprise us that this book ends up being a treatise on the gospel itself. Before we look at these first seven verses, I'd like to give you a short uh, introduction to the book of Romans, if we can. First of all, let's consider the author of this book. The author, of course, is Paul. It begins by saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. So Paul was the author of the book. Now, Paul was born in Tarsus, we find out in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. He says it this way, a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. Cilicia was the capital city of the province of of the Roman province of Cilicia. And Cilicia was one of the university towns or university centers. So it was a place of much learning, much education. And Paul being who he was, probably was involved in that, was a learned man. His father was a Pharisee. The Bible tells us that in Acts 23, verse 6. Paul was a Roman citizen, probably because his dad was a Roman citizen. 
You remember when the chief captain sought to uh, give Paul a scourging for preaching the gospel. Uh, Paul objected and said, are you going to scourge me openly, being uncondemned, and I'm a Roman? And it scared him when he heard that he was a Roman, so they inquired and found out that he was. And he said, uh, and the chief captain said, I earned that, that privilege of being a Roman. It cost me a lot of money. And Paul said, but I was freeborn. In other words, I was born a Roman, so his dad was a Roman citizen as well. He probably lost a lot of his wealth when he trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior because his dad being a Pharisee and him growing up as a Pharisee and probably be, and having become a Pharisee himself, when uh, he trusted the Lord as his Savior, he was probably uh, disinherited by his dad. And he said it like this in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I have suffered the loss for, for whom, that is for Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. So he probably experienced some, uh, some financial loss because he became a Christian. He studied before he got saved as a Pharisee, as a young man, he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. The Bible tells us that in Acts 22 verse 3. Gamaliel was, was recognized as the greatest Hebrew teacher at that time, and so he studied at his feet. Paul himself was a Pharisee. His dad was a Pharisee, and he was a Pharisee. He persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, that when they got ready to stone Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, they laid their clothes down at the feet of a man by the name of, of Saul. And so he was consenting to his death, chapter 8, verse 1 tells us. And then in chapter 9 of, uh, of, of, of Acts, it says this, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And so he was a persecutor of the church. Before he was saved, before he trusted the Lord as his Savior, he fought against the Lord, and he persecuted the church. He was a tent maker as well. It's, it's understood that many times uh, young men in those days, even though they were going to pursue like being a Pharisee, they were they encouraged to study a trade so that they would have that to fall back on if needed be. Well, uh, Paul was a tent maker, and so he used that tent making skill in his ministry. And sometimes, he, like for a church at Corinth, he didn't want to take any money from them because they would boast about it or criticize him about it. So he made his own living by making tents as he served the Lord uh, as, a, as a preacher. But, but one day he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. He was going to Damascus with letters to arrest Christians. And he was going, con, going to continue his threatenings to Christians on his, road to, on his way to Damascus. And that was intent, his intent when he got there. But the Lord stopped him on the road to Damascus. And he said this, uh, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul heard that voice and there was a light from heaven, you remember. And uh, Saul didn't know who it was. And he says, who art thou, Lord? And he knew it was God speaking to him, but he said, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you persecute. Now, Paul was persecuting the church, but Jesus said, you persecute the church and you persecute me. I am Jesus whom you persecute. Well, right then, Paul realized or Saul realized that he was persecuting uh, the church and the church was telling the truth because they said Jesus was Lord and he just found out that he was Lord. And so there he came to know the Lord as his Savior. He submitted, he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
And, and the Bible says, says of him that, that uh, he said, what wilt thou have me to do? He told the Lord, he said, what wilt thou have me to do? That's a great thing for every person who comes to know the Lord as their Savior. If a person claims to be saved and they have no intent and no desire and no, seem like no in, inclination of serving the Lord, then you probably mark it down they're not saved. Because when he got saved, immediately he said, what wilt thou have me to do? So that was Paul that's writing this book. After his conversion, it seems that he spent three years in Arabia. Now, we, do, we find that out by piecing together some things, and the main part is in the book of Galatians chapter 1. And it says that he was in Arabia. Uh, the Lord took him to Arabia, and then it says after three years. So he probably spent three years in Arabia away from everybody and uh, uh, just with the Lord, and the Lord was teaching him there. That might have taken place, as Acts chapter, t- chapter 9 tells us, he was in Damascus, not Damascus, uh, he was in, well, I can't, maybe it was, I, I can't remember now the name, the town. But uh, he was talking about the Lord Jesus, and they, they came after him, they were going to kill him, and they had to let him down out of the window in a basket down, down the side. That's why some people say Paul started out of the basket case, you know. They laid him down in the basket. <laughs> and then it says that then he turned up in Jerusalem. And probably after he left there, he went three years to Arabia alone with the Lord, and then he went back to Jerusalem and started his ministry. Well, anyway, he was greatly used of the Lord after he got saved, and we know from the book of Acts that he took three missionary journeys, and he established many churches in those missionary journeys. And then the Lord used him to write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. So a great part of the New Testament was written by, by Paul. So he's the writer of this book. And all the things that we have mentioned that happened to him happened before he wrote this book. And so Paul is getting ready to, he's going to be going to Rome later, but he writes Rome. He's never been there before. He writes the Roman citizens. So let's talk about the recipients of the books. He was the writer, he was the writer of the book, but who did he write it to? Well, that's very simple. It was to the saints at Rome. Verse 7 says, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. So it were the saints, the believers at Rome, that uh, he was writing to. Now this brings up the question of who started the, book, the church at Rome? I know the Roman Catholic Church says that Peter started the, book, the church at Rome, and they claim that Peter was the first pope. There's a problem with that. First of all, uh, popes don't marry, and Peter was married because he had a mother-in-law. I don't know how you get a mother-in-law without being married, so he was married. Another thing, Paul, in writing the Romans, in the last chapter of the book, he mentions 26 people by name. And then he mentions a mother and a sister, doesn't call their name. So that's 28 people that Paul mentions, and he never once mentions Peter. Now, if Peter started the church at Rome, and Paul is going, get it, wants to go to Rome, and he's writing Rome, surely he would have said something about Peter. He knew Peter, and uh, so you would think he would say something, but he doesn't. His name is not mentioned. Also, in the book of Acts, Luke writes a history of the early church and tells about its churches that were established and everything. And he never mentions that Peter ever went to Rome, and he never mentions that Peter ever started a church in Rome. So it's very doubtful that Peter had, had started a church in Rome. Also, 
Paul's or that Paul started the church, that Peter started the church in, in Rome. It's doubtful, but Paul also had a, had a policy, and he tells us this in the book of Romans, chapter fifteen, verse twenty. And his policy was that he would not build on another man's man's foundation. He was at he was into the gospel and taking the gospel to new regions and not building on another man's foundation. So if Peter had already been to, to Rome and had built the church, then Paul wouldn't have gone there and built on his foundation because that was against his policy. And so uh, we, we don't believe that uh, Peter actually founded the church at Rome. Well, you, then the question comes, well, how did the church at Rome start? How did it start? Well, it's a good question. And uh, you go back to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and you find that Peter is preaching to, uh, the, on Pentecost. And when he's preaching on Pentecost, the Bible mentions the people that were there. And it mentions this, there were strangers from Rome there at Pentecost when Peter preached that message. The end result of that message were that 3,000 people got saved. And so probably some of those people that got saved were from Rome. Well, when you get saved oh, and you go, go somewhere, guess what you take with you? You take with you the gospel. You know the gospel and you want to share the gospel. So they probably went to Rome and shared the gospel. And then another thing, uh, Paul, in writing the book of Romans in chapter 16, he mentions somebody that had been somewhere else he, we know of, and that is Priscilla and Aquila. In Acts chapter 18, Paul met them at Corinth. And they were believers. They knew the Lord. They loved the Lord. They loved the scripture. And then he writes to Rome, and in chapter 16, he mentions Aquila and Priscilla who were at Rome. So they traveled from different places. They had been at Corinth, and now they're at Rome. And so they might have been well-to-do people. I don't know. But they're in Rome, and no doubt Priscilla, rather Aquila and Priscilla, no doubt they would share the message they knew. So how did the church start in Rome? Probably just by people traveling there who knew Jesus and they witnessed to their neighbors and they established a church. And that's probably how it, how it began in, in, in Rome. Well, then the question comes as far as introducing the book, the book, and that is who carried this letter to the Romans? Who carried it to him? Well, you ladies will be glad to hear that this because in chapter 16, uh, verses 1 and 2, it tells us probably who that person was that carried the letter. And let me turn there quickly. It says in, in Romans 16, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church which is at, at Centria, that ye receive her in the Lord as become a saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succor of many and of myself also. So evidently, Paul sent his letter by Phoebe, and so a woman took the gospel, or took this letter that explained the gospel, it took, she took it to Rome before, Peter, before Paul ever got there. And so that's just a little introduction to the book of Romans. But now let's look at these, these verses, these sev first seven verses. I know they're not very long verses, but really there's a good bit in these verses. Let's start, first of all, by seeing the preacher of the gospel. The preacher of the gospel, of course, was Paul. Let's notice his description. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. That tells the privilege of Paul. I note that Paul says he's a servant before he ever says he's an apostle. So that means that Paul was not big-headed. 
You know, he didn't have a big head. He didn't say, oh, I'm an apostle. No, he starts off by saying, I'm a servant. And then he says, I'm an apostle. So his privilege was to be a servant. In the Greek language, the word servant there is the word doulos. And it means a bond slave. A bond slave is somebody that somebody purchases and becomes their slave. They have paid a price for them, and they, they are owned by them. They belong to them, and they're to do, do their will. And Paul said, I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Well, that's a pretty good way to describe it because that's true of us as well, isn't it? We have been bought as a Lord's servant. It's a privilege to be his servant. We were the servants of Satan. We were the servants of the devil. We were the servants of sin. But God saved us, and what he did was he purchased us with his own blood. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 18, we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We're redeemed by his blood. The word redeemed means released by the payment of a price. So that, that's a bond slave, you know. We were subject to the devil, but God released us by the payment of a price, and he paid the price, the precious blood of Christ. He died for us, and we trusted him as our Savior, so we are now his bond slave. First Corinthians also tells us that, chapter 6, that our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. You remember he's talking about people involved in immorality, and he says, flee fornication. And he says, you who are involved in immorality, he says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of God? If you're a Christian and you've done that, he rebukes them and says, don't you know your body is a temple of God? Whom you, whom you, he says, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So you're bought with a price. You belong to the Lord. So Paul, his privilege was to be a bond slave, a servant. Our privilege is to be a servant. He's also, we find out something about his position. His position was an apostle. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. If you'll notice in your King James Version there, it says to be, when, and that's in italics. Anytime you find words in italics in the, in the, in the King James Bible, it means that those aren't, aren't really in the, in the original language. But they are they are added to help you understand that that's the intent. Well, sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not the best uh, because like later it says, the Lord, we're called to be saints. Well, we're not called to be saints. Later in the future, we're called saints. And so you really could leave those words out that are supplied because they're in italics. Called saints, we're called saints. Well, but Paul says, here's his position. I'm called apostle. I'm called apostle. Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apostle meant one cent. Those were special people. There were 12 original apostles. And Paul said that he, by special intent of the Lord, was the 13th. He doesn't use that term, 13th, but he was the 13th apostle. There were 13 original apostles. That was the original 12, and then Paul added on to he was an apostle. There are no apostles today. Now, sometimes you hear on TV or radio and you'll hear somebody saying that he's an apostle or he has the, he has the gifts of the apostles. Uh, nobody has that today. Nobody's an apostle today. In fact, I don't believe there are any prophets today. The only sense that we would be a prophet is that we, we tell what has already been written, but we're not really called prophets today. The Bible says in, in, the, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, 
that we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So when the Lord started building the church, the chief cornerstone was Jesus, and the foundation was the apostles and the prophets. When you lay the foundation, it's laid. You don't need any more. Then you start building the superstructure, and that's us. There are no apostles today. And so don't fall for the line of somebody says, I'm really special, I'm an apostle. No, you're not an apostle. Paul was an apostle, original 12. Uh, Judas, of course, he was, he was taken out and another put in. But there were originally 12 and then, and then Paul. But he was an apostle. That was his position. Now let's notice his purpose. The preacher of the gospel, what was his purpose? It, sep- it said very clearly in verse 1, separated unto the gospel of God. I've titled the message this morning, The Gospel of God. And because Paul was separated unto the gospel of God. You see, he, he was all about the gospel. That's what Paul lived for. That's what Paul is all about, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere he went, he took the gospel. He explained the gospel. He preached the gospel. He told people about what all was involved in the gospel and the benefits of the gospel. All of those things. Paul was all about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So his purpose was the gospel. So this preacher of the gospel, his privilege was to be a servant. His position was an apostle. And his, his uh, purpose was to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're very similar to that. We also have the privilege of being a servant. You, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a bond slave of Jesus Christ. You have a position. You're not an apostle, but you are an ambassador. And the Bible says we're ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Also, we have the purpose, the same as Paul had the purpose. Paul's purpose was the gospel. That's our purpose. The Lord says in, in the, after Pentecost, you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, after Pentecost takes place, he says, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That's our purpose, and that is we are to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to take his gospel wherever we go. Now, I want to stop there for just a minute and say, ask the question, what is the gospel? You know, there's a lot of confusion today about what is the gospel. Most people here in our church know what it is because I emphasize it so much. But let me tell you, the gospel is not the good news about what Jesus will do. Let me say that again. The gospel is not the good news about what Jesus will do. I've heard it described sometimes, they'll be talking to adults and usually mostly children. They'll say, if you will ask Jesus into your heart, he will save you. I've heard him say it like this. If your, your heart's black with sin, and the child would say, yeah, I, I, I do some things wrong. Your heart's black with sin. If you will ask Jesus to come into your heart, he will clean it all up. You know, that's really not the gospel. In fact, it's not even close. <laughs> because you know what was missing in all of that? What was missing was what Jesus did for you. <laughs> You see, the gospel is not what Jesus will do. The gospel is what Jesus has already done 2,000 years ago. And that is on the cross of Calvary, he died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. 
1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the gospel. He says, I tell you the gospel, how Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scripture, and that he is alive, and he was seen of many witnesses. So the, the gospel is the story of what Jesus has done for you in the past, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. The gospel is not if you, will turn, if you will commit your life to the Lord, he will save you. No, he won't. He won't save you just when you say you commit your life to the Lord. He won't save you just because you said, Lord, I want you to come into my heart. It's not about what he does here. It's about what he did back there. And you have to hear that gospel and you have to trust that gospel, trust what Jesus did, and then you can be saved. But it's a response to what he did. That's the good news. What's the good news about what he will do? No, the good news is about what he's already done. And that is he died for my sins according to the scripture. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He has paid for all my sins. He did that on the cross of Calvary. That's good news. It's all paid for. All I have to do is believe that. Believe the gospel. And so I believe the gospel. I call unto the Lord to the Lord and I say, Lord, I do believe what you did for me. I want you to save me based on that. And the Lord will save you because you believe the gospel. You know, it's very evident in the scripture. You look at it. And over and over and over again, the Lord says, believe, 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 believe. But many times when people present what they call the gospel, they leave out that very thing, and that is they believe. You have, there's something you have to believe. There's a message that must be believed before you can ever get saved, and that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, the Lord's confronting you today with the gospel, and that is your sin condemns you and you don't deserve heaven you deserve the wrath of God but there's good news way back on the cross of Calvary Jesus took your sin and it was placed on him and he bore the punishment for all of it he died for you and then he was buried and three days later he came forth from the grave alive as proof that it was all paid for and your sin nobody else's sin could hold him down it was paid for and he offers you salvation as a free gift if you'll just believe in what he did for you that's the gospel and so we need to know what the gospel is so the preacher of the gospel was paul now let's look at the promise of the gospel. We find the word promise uh, as, as we look at it here. He says in verse 2, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The promise of the gospel. What I'm just saying here is that it's not a new message. It was promised a long time ago. You see, the gospel was known by the Lord in his mind before the world ever was made. God already knew what he was going to do about sin. That means God knew man would sin. I mean, God knew he was going to give him the choice, and God knew he was going to make the wrong choice, but God already had it planned. So grace is older than sin. God had it planned what he was going to do for us before the foundation of the world. The Bible says that in Revelation 13, 8. In, in God's mind, Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, who verily were for, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last days for you. The promise of the gospel is this. It has already been promised. It was already promised in the Old Testament prophets. In the book of Romans itself, just that book, Paul quotes the Old Testament 61 times. 61 times he quotes the Old Testament. 
And he's saying that this gospel is promised. I mean, it comes to fruition now. Jesus has died and he's paid, but has paid for our sin. But way back in the past, it was promised by the prophets. We think of some of that back in Isaiah 53, verse 6. He said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It says right before that, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And so he tells us that he died for us, for the transgression of my people. He, he died for us. And so Jesus died for our sins. And even the Old Testament prophets told about that. It was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 where the Lord promised that the seed of the woman would crush the, the head of the serpent. God promised that deliverance was coming. It was promised in Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. So God in the Old Testament had promised this, this gospel. So the promise of the gospel is that it was, it's not an old message. It was in God's mind, and he's brought it to completion, and it's available now, and we preach that message, which the Lord planned for years, way before the foundation of the world. So Paul, the preacher of the gospel, is making known the gospel which has been promised by the prophets from old. And then we come to the person of the gospel. You see, let's read verse 2 which he had promised afore by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus. The gospel which was promised concerning his son Jesus. So who's the gospel about? The gospel's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The person of the gospel is the Lord Jesus. Let's look at some things that are revealed here about the person of the gospel, and that's Jesus. First of all, his name. It gives his name in this way. His son Jesus Christ, our Lord. That order is significant, but let's look at the the various things. Uh, His Son. That speaks of the Son of God, the eternality of Jesus. Uh, You see, God didn't one day have a son in Bethlehem. That's the wrong way to state it. Uh, A son wasn't born to God at Bethlehem. It didn't start there. The one that was born in Bethlehem eternally existed and he took residence in the womb of the Virgin Mary and he became a man. So God became a man, but he was the son of God in eternity past. He always has been. Jesus never had a beginning. He is God. And so he's eternal. And so he says his name is his son. And then he says Jesus. Jesus is that human name. You remember when the angel was talking to Mary, he said, call his name Jesus, Luke 1, 39. And then to, to Joseph, he said this in Matthew 1, 21. To Joseph, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Jesus was a common name in those days. Many people were named Jesus. But it meant Savior. It was the, old, it was the equivalent of the Old Testament word Joshua. And so Jesus, that's his human name. You should call his name Jesus. So his son, Jesus, and then Christ. The name Christ is the anointed one. If you would ask a Jew what Christ means, they would say, well, that's Messiah. That's Messiah. And so Jesus is Messiah. So what's his name? His name is Son Jesus Christ. And so he's a human being but he's God and he's Christ. He's the Messiah. And then it says this, our Lord, our Lord, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
our Lord speaks of his exalted position. And I said this is chronological as well, and it is. His son, eternally the son, came to this earth, took upon himself humanity, Jesus, and he was the Christ. He would become the, 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 the Messiah, the anointed one, and then Finally, he would be the Lord. He would be in that exalted position. And Philippians chapter 2 says, The day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You think of the most wicked person you've ever known of. Today we'd probably think Putin. <laughs> but you think of the most rich, wicked person you know of. And the day's going to come when that wicked person who denies Jesus, curses Jesus, lives a terrible life, is going to bow the knee and admit Jesus is Lord. But it would be too late for them if they don't trust Jesus beforehand, but they will admit it. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so you either say it now or you'll say it uh, in the future. I've sometimes said that, uh, I've commented on the phrase many years ago when I was a young pastor, this was very prominent. And preachers would say, and they'd preach it hard, and they'd say, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. That's not right. <laughs> That's not right. If you as a Christian are living your life and you're not allowing the Lord to have lordship over you and you're not submitting to him, let me tell you a little secret. He's still Lord. <laughs> he's still Lord. The variable, the variable is not the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord all the time, and he always will be. And if you know him as Savior, he's your Lord. And if you don't submit to him, you're not submitting to your Lord. And someday when you stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll give an account of the times that you didn't submit to the Lord. And you, you lost all these rewards that you could have had. But he was Lord, but you didn't submit. But he was Lord. So it's not right to say if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Yes, he's Lord, all Lord. He's always Lord, and he always will be Lord. And uh, we just need to obey him because he's our Lord. And so his name, Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now notice the emphasis on his humanity. Look at verse 3. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. According to the flesh. This speaks of his humanity. He was made of the seed of David. It's interesting that the Lord uses the word made and not born. And I think there's probably significance there. I believe there's a, sort of an indication of the virgin birth. Jesus was born, but it was a, tip, a different kind of, of birth in a sense that his, physical his earthly father was not his physical father. <laughs> he was virgin born, virgin conceived. Jesus was conceived of the virgin without her ever knowing a man. And so he was supernaturally conceived. In that sense, he was made. He was made of the seed of David. Uh, 1 John 1, 14 says, The word was made flesh. Galatians 4, 14, or Galatians 4, 4 says, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And so the Lord, is, uh, his humanity is seen here. He's made of the seed of David according to the flesh. The seed of David, that means he came from a certain line, the seed of David. And uh, that's very significant because in order for 
the Lord to reign at the, during the millennial reign of Christ, he must be of the seed of David. And so Jesus had to come through the seed of David to have the right to the throne. But there's a real problem. And that is back in the book of Jeremiah, chapter uh, 22, verse 30, it says there's a king by the name of Coniah. And God cursed him and said nobody from his, his, his family will ever sit on the throne. Well, there's a problem there. He came from Solomon. So that means really nobody has the right to the throne to sit on the throne and reign as king in, in the millennial reign who's descended from David down through Solomon. But, and that's where Joseph came from, but he's not the physical father of Jesus. He has nothing to do with it. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But the genealogy that traces it through Mary takes it back through Nathan, the son of David. And so he has the he has the right through Solomon legally, but he bypasses the curse of Coniah because he's virgin born. And so Jesus is the only one who ever lived who has the right to sit on the throne because he bypasses the curse of Coniah in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. You can look it up and read it yourself, but there's a curse there on him. It's interesting that the Bible begins, the New Testament begins in chapter 1 of of Matthew in fact the very first verse says this Jesus Christ the son of David and then you get to the last chapter of the New Testament chapter 22 of the book of Revelation verse 16 it says this I am the root and offspring of David you see Jesus is our savior but let's not forget he's king <laughs> he's going to rule and reign someday and I'm going I want to be on the right side of the king don't you <laughs> I want to be on, on his side. I want to be uh, loved by him. I want to be ruling, reigning with him. I don't want to be an enemy of him. He's the king. And don't forget, Jesus the Savior is the king. But his humanity is pointed out there that he is the rightful heir of the throne of David. He's the seed of David. But also notice his deity, verse 4. It says this, and declared to be the son of God with power. He's declared to be the son of God with power. God declares him to be the Son of God with power. Notice how it says it. Declared be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, he was holy, he was totally without sin, by the resurrection from the dead. When did God prove that Jesus, declared Jesus fully to be who he said he was, going, who he, said he was and what he said he was, would do? It was when he rose from the grave. He came victorious over everything that was against him. All the sin of the world being laid upon him, he paid every bit of it, and then he rose from the grave. And he was, he was, his deity was declared there as, as, as in no other way. Of course, when he lived this, on this earth, his deity was, was shown by his perfect life. His deity was shown by his wonderful works. But his deity was, was, was forcefully declared by God when Jesus rose from the grave. And so we see his deity. And then we see his authority in verse 5. By whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now Paul was the last apostle, but since that we've all been receiving grace by the authority of God. You see, you will never receive grace from God apart from Jesus Christ. Grace comes through Jesus. He's the only one that has the authority to give it. Nobody else can give you grace and say, well... You know, I know you've sinned, but I'll let you into heaven anyway. Nobody's going to do that. 
The only one that can give grace is through Jesus. And the only way he'll give you grace is if you accept what Jesus did for you on the cross of Calvary. Then he'll give you grace and you'll be able to go to heaven, which you don't deserve and I don't deserve. But that comes through Jesus Christ. John 1, 14 says, but we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. And verse 17 says, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace comes through Jesus. So there's the, the preacher of the gospel, the promise of the gospel, and the, and the person of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Now let's close by looking at, at the purpose of the gospel. I see this beginning in verses 5, five going through verse 7. I'm going to pick, pick out things that, that are purpose of the gospel, and they're not in the exact order as they list here, but for preaching's sake, uh, let's look at it this way. First of all, the purpose of the gospel. Why does God give people the gospel? Why have you received the gospel today? You've received it. You've heard it. Why have you received it in, in many times past? Even if you're not saved, why have you heard the gospel? There's a purpose in it. First of all, the purpose is to call us to God. Verse 6 says, Ye are also called of Jesus Christ. He told the Romans, he said, You are called of Jesus Christ. God called you by his gospel. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, he says, He called you by our gospel. When you hear the gospel, God's calling you. God's saying, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. God's saying, Believe on me, and I will save you. Whosoever believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. God's calling unto you. And so the gospel's purpose is to call you unto God. The gospel's purpose is also to bring you grace and peace. It says in verse, verse 7, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That can only come through the gospel, grace and peace. So God's purpose of the gospel is to give you grace and peace. If you're here today and you never trusted the Lord as your Savior, you don't need mercy. You don't want mercy. I mean, mercy just, you want grace. I mean, I'm sure you want mercy, but mercy is when God withholds things. But you want something more. You want God to give you what you don't deserve, and that is forgiveness, a home in heaven, all those things. The Lord wants, the Lord wants to give you all those blessings. So you, you want grace. You surely don't want justice. You surely don't want justice. So the purpose of the gospel is to call you, at, at, to give you grace, grace and peace. You know, those always go in that order, grace and peace. Because there is no peace until there's grace. There's no true peace until there's grace. And when Jesus saves you, he gives you grace, unmerited favor. He makes you his child, and so you experience grace and peace. Another purpose of the gospel is to bring us God's love. Notice verse 7, he calls them beloved of God. Beloved of God. When God sends you the gospel, presents you with the gospel, he wants to bring you love like you've never known before. The Bible says it's love so, so great in, in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing whatsoever can separate you from his love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God. So when God gives you the gospel, he gives you the opportunity of having his love. John stated like this in John 4, 1 John 4, verse 1 to 3. He said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called sons of God. And says, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
Someday we'll be in heaven. Someday we'll be like Jesus. And that's all because he loves us. It's a behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. And so the purpose of the gospel is for you to experience love like you've never experienced it before. We come to Jesus and we're, we're sinful. We're lost. We're on the way to hell. We don't deserve any good, any good thing from him. And we call out to him and say, Lord, I believe that you died for me. And he saves you at that moment. And he loves you with a, a love that's not compared to anything else. A love that will never separate you from him. You, nothing will ever separate you from him. You are eternally loved by God. And so the purpose of the gospel is to bring you to God's love. Also a purpose of the gospel is to set you apart unto himself. Look at verse 7. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Again, the words to be or italics, called saints. You see, I'm a saint. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe that people do wonderful things and they die and they go to heaven and then, and then uh, certain people get together and decide whether they're going to be a saint or not and whether we can pray to them or not. Uh, you don't find any of that in the Bible. It's not there. Who are saints? You're saints. If you know Jesus, I'm a saint. Sometimes we, people, you know, we will say something like this. Somebody will be bragging on us and we'll, and we'll say, oh, I'm not, I'm not a saint. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> I'll never say to anybody I'm not a saint because I am. The Bible says I am. What does saint mean? It means set apart one. That's what the word means. Set apart one. That's, that's what the word sanctify means. We're set apart and uh, a saint, a set-apart set one, is a saint. And so we could call this church today Sugar Run Valley Church of the Saints. I'm not going to call it that, but we could. <laughs> or we could say, somebody could say, where'd you go to church today? Well, I went to church over there on the 132 where the saints meet. <laughs> uh, you might say, well, now that doesn't sound right, but it is. Because if you know Jesus as your Savior, you're a saint. You're set apart unto him. Isn't that great to know that I'm set apart in him? That means that God saved me one day and he set me over here and he said, this one is mine. He's mine. I'm going to treat him as mine. He's my son. I'm going to make him my heir. I'm going to forgive him of all of his sins. I'm going to give him my Holy Spirit to live within him forever. I'm going to someday take him home to heaven. And until he gets there, I'm going to give him victory in his life. I'm going to give him power to do what he needs to do. I'm going to be with him all the time. I'll never leave him. I'll never quit loving him. He's mine. He's all mine. He's my saint. I'm glad I'm a saint. And so he says the purpose of the gospel is to make you a saint. To make you a saint. It's also the purpose of the gospel. Verse 5. We go back to verse 5. It says uh, for, for, for obedience to the faith. <laughs> See God brings the gospel to people. So they obey him. So they will obey him. And God wants us to obey him. God doesn't want Christians to go about being disobedient. He wants us to in intentionally say. Lord I want to do what's right. I want to obey you. And God wants us to obey him. And so God sends us the gospel so, we'll have people, so he'll have people to obey him. And then finally we can say the purpose of the gospel is to bring him glory. Notice what it says in verse 5. Among, he says, Whom have received grace and apostleship and obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. We live for Jesus. It's for his glory, not ours. 
He deserves all the praise. He deserves all the glory. And God sends us the gospel so that we can respond to him and he can save us and he can be glorified by it. You see, the gospel has come to everyone here today. Most of us, if not all of us, have heard it many times. But if you've never responded to the gospel by faith, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord, let me go through the things that we said were the purpose of the gospel. If you've not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God has called you, but you've refused, to, you've refused his call. You've said no. God has offered you grace and peace, but you rejected it. God has offered you his eternal love, but you love your sin more than him, and you've spurned his love. God has offered to make you his own and set you apart as his saint, but you would rather run, run your own life and be your own, and you're not willing to be his servant. God has offered to bring you to obedience, but you would rather be disobedient. You think sin is fun, it won't hurt you, so you will continue to be God's enemy, refusing to obey him. When the gospel comes to you and you reject it, God has offered to allow you to live for his glory but you, and for his name, but you said, no, I'd rather live for myself. You say by that that you don't want Jesus. You say by that that you don't love Jesus. You say by that that you don't think you need Jesus. The gospel does not sound like good news to you. It doesn't sound that way at all. So you reject the gospel but the day will come, if you continue like that, that you'll die. And I'll guarantee you, the moment that you die, all of a sudden you'll realize, that was good news. And I turned to the side. But then it will be too late. The wait time to respond to the gospel is now. If you've never trusted Jesus, I hope that you will today. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for just telling us about the gospel and I thank you for the gospel of God. I thank you, Lord, that you've died for our sins and paid the price so we could go to heaven. I imagine most people here have trusted Jesus, Lord, but if someone has not, I pray that today they will respond to the gospel and say, Lord, I know I'm a, I'm a sinner and I want Jesus. I'm not trusting religion. I'm not trusting this church, but I'm trusting Jesus, what he did for me. And I know that you'll do for them like you did for me and, and many others here. If they will call upon you, believing the gospel, repenting of their sin and trusting you, you will save them. And I pray that will happen today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.